Hi, my name is Jim Lewis. And my name is Chris Painter. Welcome to Inside Cyber Diplomacy. Between the two of us, I think we know almost everyone involved in cyber diplomacy. And the idea behind this is really to have frank conversations with those leaders in this area and bring that to the rest of the world, this new area of diplomacy, and talk to these leaders about what's going on. Our plan is that you'll hear things on this podcast that you're not going to hear anywhere else. Frank, not scripted, direct conversations. Hope you like it. I know we will. So please listen in. to another episode of Inside Cyber Diplomacy. My name is Jim Lewis. I'm with my colleague, Chris Painter. And we're joined today by Ambassador Regine Grinberger from the Federal Republic of Germany, who will tell us about what's going on in Germany, what she learned from her many adventures at the UN, and what we should look forward to in the future. So, Regine, let's start with that. Were you surprised at the successful outcomes at the UN? Ah, thank you, Jim. Thank you, first, for having me. And yes, I was surprised. Although I'm normally an optimist, I was very hesitating to forecast a, a successful outcome for these, I would say, two negotiation tracks, both OEWG and DGE. And this was because I had a very strong feeling of the underlying geopolitical tensions that we suffered from during these negotiations. And it was like in the very last minute, the tide turned and we saw a lot of commitment also by the, let's say, cyber superpowers. And in the end, we ended up with quite good reports in both cases. What do you think, you know, as you look at the report, what do you think was the biggest advancement, you know, surprising or not? What do you think that report really added to the previous deliberations? In the case of the OEWG, certainly that uh, we, we saw a lot more ownership by a lot of countries uh, that haven't participated in, in former DGEs. And I think in the final rounds of statements, I think it was like 60 countries that, that gave a statement. And this, is, this, is, this shows really that not only digitization and digital transformation is going on, but also that um, states countries, governments are taking more responsibility for the way that digitization transforms their government and also societies. In the case of uh, GGE, I think what was most uh, contested and most difficult to find a language on was attribution and, and of course, international humanitarian law. And that we have now half a page or almost a page on attribution is really a success because this is very en vogue uh, at the moment. And it's really important that we develop a common understanding of what it is for. What advice would you give to fledgling cyber diplomats? Because there were a lot of very strong new performers at the OEWG. What would you tell them to look at? What skills would you suggest? What's your advice? Well, these are classical multilateral negotiations, though what you need is really some kind of resilience to be able to, to make compromises at the, at the 11th hour, because otherwise you will have no, maximizing your, your outcome will not help. So therefore you also, what you also need is kind of a good backing by your government that you have some leeway in these last hours of the negotiations, because 
yeah, you have to take some compromises on your bill in the end, and this has to be legitimized, of course. And then, on the other hand, many of our colleagues come from the arms control and disarmament field, but cyber is a little bit different. So I would recommend not to be afraid of the technical or technological questions in this issue, but uh, to look at it also, let's say, from an informed citizen's point of view, because we are all dealing with these technologies and we have all some collected some experiences on, let's say, being hacked, being disinformed and so on. So this is also a good basis for how to touch upon the questions that, that we have to, to deal with there. You were relatively new to this club, I guess. You, uh, you started, I guess, the yeah, the new kid on the block. <laughs> Well, you know, and, and I'm just wondering as someone, you know, there have been people who have been doing this a long time and they sort of get blinders on a little bit, but coming into this. Oh, this no, fashion, never. Now, no, we see everything, right? <laughs> uh, we know all and see all. Well, you know. <laughs> so, I, so I guess a question, just to draw an analogy to your building, uh, your foreign ministry building, there is this great elevator, the Padunaska, I think it's called, which you just jump on and jump off and it keeps going round and round. So, so was the... Uh, were these negotiations just, are we just going round and round and round this issue like that elevator? Or are we actually making some progress? Did you, coming in fresh, did you see this as something where, you know, yes, the people have been studying this a long time said, oh, we, we've made these, these statements, which we haven't before, but is this really the kind of forward progress we need? Are we moving fast enough as not a newbie, but a, a relative newbie to the cyber world? What's your, your view of this? Well, you know, um, this elevator is called Pater Nostra because of the prayer, our father. And this is perhaps the analogy that you are looking That's for. <laughs> yeah, um, I must say that I wouldn't be too proud of the progress that we've made because what we really uh, dealt with was defending the the acquis, defending the framework that was set up during the last I don't know twenty years or so. And the question is really why do we why do we need to defend the acquis? I think. One of the reasons is this, that China, as also kind of a newcomer in, in cyber diplomacy, is starting to, um, to express its own view on how to develop cyber governance. And this makes it very difficult. And many comments on, for example, the draft reports of both uh, groups came from the Chinese delegation with the intention not to not to restrict too much um, national sovereignty prerogatives in the field of cyber governance. So I think there was not much progress made, but we have reached a consensus report which is not full of, you know, compromise formula that in the end means nothing. We have certain cornerstones for our cyber governance architecture that will turn out useful in the future. So one of the things I've been telling the new administration is that Berlin is the key to uh, success in many areas, including cooperation on cybersecurity. Uh, and so it's I think you saw that with the secretary saying how important it was to rebuild last weekend, last week, anyhow. What would you give as advice to the U.S. on how to rebuild relationships on cybersecurity on these issues? What what areas could be strengthened? What areas, new areas might need to be explored? So uh, important issue for moving forward collaboratively. Well, 
this is also a question in the other direction. What does the U.S. expect from us? And this is something where we would like to learn because we didn't have much dialogue about these issues in the past in the years in the past years. Mm. So, first of all, uh, the meeting of the two ministers was very useful in the sense of that they started to talk about it and also. I would say to take possession of this issue of cyber diplomacy again after um, a long period of not speaking about it. And of course, uh, Germany wants to be a very good partner for the US because we share the values, we share the problems, we share the challenges. We also have a very um, similar view on the solutions. So this is something I think we should also put some flesh on the bones and make some real efforts and make some differences also. For example, we have this joint problem of ransomware attacks. The number of ransomware attacks has increased incredibly last year and we need to join our forces to reduce the impact of this kind of cybercrime. And this is something where we could do something together. On the other hand, of course, um, and you will not be surprised me mentioning it, I have a German identity and I work for the German government, but I have also a European identity and we try, we try also to join forces on the European level. And this is something sometimes difficult to understand for our American interlocutors, that we have this double uh, level kind of approach and there is a need to explain it, there is also a need to experience it. But the EU has made a lot of decisions already in the field of digital sovereignty and cybersecurity, important also for the US. And there are other issues in the pipeline. And it's necessary to, to talk about this in order to, let's say, to define uh, a joint channel of how we move forward in these, in these ways of regulating the digital sphere. And so there's a lot. There's a lot I think we can follow up with there, but but it's you know, first of all, it's unfortunate. As you say, there hasn't been closer cooperation. I remember the first German uh, cyber ambassador, Dirk Bringelman, who's, who's now, I guess, the ambassador to the Netherlands. Uh, in still, Den Haag, yeah. yeah. Uh, so he, you know, we had started when I was uh, at state, we'd started a very robust German US dialogue. Now we had a little thing called Snowden that came in right in the middle of that, but that, uh, that in some ways caused even more dialogue. So that's unfortunate. But you know, you talked about ransomware a little bit, and one of the areas that I think Germany is critical is we talk about you know getting like-minded countries together to put pressure on countries that are safe havens, for instance. And one of those is Russia. And I think Germany has, I think, different perspectives on Russia, different tools with Russia, but also different dependencies on Russia. You know, what what do you think is the the kind of trade space there? What what can Germany do, particularly on the cybercrime issue? There's both the nation state issue and the cybercrime issue, but but to kind of put some more pressure on on Russia to to really play ball to go after some of these criminal groups. Nation state's a whole other nut to crack, but but just on the the ransomware. And we'll come we'll come back to it. We'll come to that. Yeah, we won't, we won't leave that or some of the other things you yeah, talked about. Yeah, don't think you've escaped. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, uh, the EU-Russia relations are as bad as ever at the moment. After 2014, Crimea, they deteriorated rapidly and the last years have shown no, no progress in this field. And Germany has been always the EU member state with most appealing to, to the others to not only put pressure on Russia, but also to look 
out for opportunities for the dialogue. But I mean, this has become increasingly difficult also in the last month. And, you know, we have also experienced our own hack by responsible Russian actors in the Bundestag in 2015. And so our dialogue approach has become very difficult. So where's the trade space? I would say the Biden-Putin summit gives us some hope that we can uh, restart these processes of exchanging views and also, let's say, demands and needs on the high level. And what we do with Russia is we, of course, um, they want to compartmentalize cybersecurity from other topics on the agenda, and we will not permit this. So we will keep it together because, of course, cybersecurity, cyber governance questions are part of this bigger picture of the threats coming from Russia. And we cannot allow, to, to, to let's say, this complex to fall apart. Energy, of course, this has been also a topic when our two ministers talked, is one of perhaps the soft spots where we can also call on Russia to give in to some compromise because of the advantages that they take from us, from the Europeans, the Germans buying gas from Russia. But we will see how far we can go with this. I mean, this is really a very difficult uh, field and it's, it's very challenging not to let the different strands of our relations with Russia go into different uh, directions. We have, on the other hand, also a dialogue with Russian civil society. And this dialogue is also kind of held hostage by, by other questions that, that the Russian interlocutors call for. So in order to be able to maintain also these relations with the civil society in Russia, it's also necessary to to uphold um, the, the dialogue also with the, government, with the government level. Otherwise, it will not be possible very soon. It will not be possible anymore to have this broad approach or this broad bilateral relation between uh, Russia and Germany or Russia and the EU. I had thought that the Russian civil society had all moved to Berlin. So at least it's easy to have the meeting. Let me, let me go back to the question of attribution because it's now being called political attribution. And the reason it's called political attribution is because it's linked, although this isn't always clear, it's linked to the imposition of consequences on those who fail to observe their commitments to the 2015 norms. And I know it was actually Germany in 2015 that brought up the idea of retortion, which is a term in international law for co imposing consequences. And it was very close to being included in the final document. It's a shame in some way it wasn't, but there is this broader discussion of the imposition of consequences. Where are your views on that? Uh, what do you think? It's, it's a clearly an area where we need to move cautiously, but attribution for its own sake is not that useful. It has to be accompanied by something. What do you think on that? Well, and, and Jim might also note for this question that Germany has been somewhat reticent to do the kind of public attribution that the US and, and some other countries have done for various reasons uh, that they, they've chosen not often to do that public attribution. First of all, I would say that attribution by itself has a value because it defends and enforces the norms that have been violated by the attack. It is very necessary to make a clear differentiation between what is right and what is wrong uh, in this field. It's not so easy to um, 
have it all mixed up. What we have to do with sanctions, because retortions mean sanctions, uh, and why are we not always so willing to go down this road is we need some leeway for foreign policy. And if we put automatic responses, if we, if we establish a mechanism that sees, foresees automatic responses, we, we do reduce our leeway for diplomatic action. So what we need is a room for maneuver uh, and make sure that we can at every moment decide what to do next. And this is one thing. The other element is, and this has, is perhaps an interpretation of what I just said, attribution, then retortion by sanctions or retaliation by sanctions leads to an escalation, spiraling into escalation of the conflict. And the confidence building measures that we have in place to go back the escalation, the escalation spiral are not, are not powerful enough. Perhaps mm. we feel that they are not powerful enough um, to be in place in time when we need it. So this is also something why I'm always talking about responsible attribution. You have to think it starting with the end. What could be the worst scenario coming out of the action that you are taking? So this is something we call, why we need to be very careful with attribution and have um, also a whole of government approach because when thinking about possible consequences, we will also have to have, for example, our Ministry of Economy on board or Ministry of Justice when it comes to law enforcement and so on. So it's not done by a, a press statement or a tweet to attribute. I mean, it's a whole, it's a complex decision involving the whole government, involving the bilateral relations in, in a broad understanding and also involving, again, the EU level because... We have national attribution, but our sanction mechanism is basically mm -hmm. a European one. So we have to inform our partners what we are intending to do and make sure that they understand why, that um, they, we, can, we have to share information and we have to make clear what we expect from them. Because if we choose this instrument of sanctions, they have to be with us. Isn't the worrying part, I mean, this is, I think, something that's affected the US too, that if you always look at the worst possible thing that could happen, that would counsel you to do nothing. And if you do nothing, things get worse because the adversary, in this case, Russia says, well, they didn't do anything, so I'll do it again. So, you know, I don't know that we looked at the worst case scenario in the physical world. I think there's uncertainty in the cyber world, and maybe it's partly just educating senior leaders and others about this, but we run the risk of what I think the U.S. did after the 2016 election interference, which is self-deterring. You know, we, we, we were so afraid of what could happen, we didn't actually take any action. And I just wonder where you think that balance lies. And the Russians commented on that in private discussions. They said, we were waiting for you to do something. And when you didn't do anything, we took note. So I think, Chris, this point is important. But it's also valid to say you don't want to. My original view was, we know it's them. Let's just, let's just hit them over the head with a two by four and not worry about it. That's childish. But what is the right balance? On brand. Although appealing. <laughs> Yeah, what is the right balance? Uh, we as German government, we made the now some experiences with this instrument or this tool of attribution and also of sanctions. And 
we learned, first of all, that we need a proper and structured process within the government and also with our partners to do it. Because some attributions happened by accident because one of our cybersecurity agencies wanted to warn clients or wanted to warn companies or wanted to warn members of parliament and just presented their information in order to substantiate this warning. I mean, this is not the proper way to do attribution. We also learned that, of course, the intelligence services uh, work on the basis of information sharing or exchanging information. So the moment you uh, use this information for an attribution, for substantiating an attribution, mm. it's lost for the information sharing. So sometimes they are not willing to do it. We have now um, a structured procedure which will help us to be also more in time. This is also something that I learned in my first months here, that there are two phases of a cyber incident. The first one is just stopping it and mitigating the consequences and allowing the company or the institution going back to business. And this takes all the energy of the people who do the forensics. Only in the second phase, we can collect the evidence, uh, perhaps reach out to partners. And this takes a while until we have all our information sorted and uh, evaluated and formed a joint opinion also between the different intelligence services. There is no sense in hurrying up this second phase. I think we will become better in using this tool. On the other hand, there is not much time because, of course, uh, the number of incidents and also the intensity of incidents increases by the hour. And it's not, there is not enough time to, to write a philo philosophical study about it before acting. You said um, CBMs aren't powerful enough, which is really interesting. Uh, we've had discussions with other experts on the utility of a hotline, which I think both Chris and I was rate as uh, very low. But what what would be a powerful CBM? What what more could we do to, you know, and how much do we need on the other side in terms of political willingness to cooperate? So yeah. that was a really interesting remark. Yeah, first of all, um, we have CBMs in place on the regional level, but of course, some of the actors we are speaking about in, in the case of Germany are not um, participating in these regional security organizations. Um, this is uh, the first problem. And the second problem is, of course, that one of the big actors in the field which, with which we are working in a regional security organization is, let's say, not the easiest partner when it comes to really setting up joint understanding, for example, on what evidence has to be shared. And Gee, who are you talking about? <laughs> and who, uh, who is sharing this evidence? <laughs> and of course, I, I have also to look uh, into our homework because for example, we have 42 certs in Germany and it's not always easy for an outsider to understand who to turn to in case of an incident. And the information sharing between certs is also quite complicated because of this. We have 42 because we, have, we are organized on a, on a regional with regions and federal institutions and also the big critical infrastructure uh, entities have also their own search. So there are 42 in the end. I think it's quite the same in, in the US, but we have less centralization as many other states. So it's more complicated in our case.
and what we need, I think, is um, really something also on the global level for CBMs. <laughs> this was something decided for by also by the two reports that we have um, concluded uh, this spring. And there is really a gap in, in what we can do in case of an incident in terms of CBM. Well, and I think, you know, in terms of the de-escalatory mechanisms, you mentioned yeah. having good diplomacy. You're having, you know, it might not be good diplomacy, but at least you have diplomats talking, you have intelligence people talking, you have law enforcement people talking, you have, you know, political leaders talking. So even if that to me seems like a way to keep things getting out of control. But shifting from Russia for a second, I mean, the other big uh, thing on, on Biden's tour just recently was China. And I think there was probably less agreement with respect to China, at least I marked that part of that up to being economic issues as well. How do you differentiate the approach from Russia to China? What is it, you know, China poses, I think, a larger term uh, challenge in terms of just not cyber activity, but also technology writ large and supply chain and other issues. So, so how, how do you look at that issue of how to, how to deal with China? And again, I think, you know, obviously, China is a market for Germany, but at the same time, it, it's, it's caused some problems. Yeah, yeah it does. So um, <laughs> I would say 10 years ago, the German-China policy was about car selling. It's not like this anymore. It's not like this anymore. So um, what, we, what we have now is... We are not, they are not on the same level, Russia and China, because with Russia we see, of course, um, or we, we have, a, of course, developed in 75 years a very uh, intense understanding of the security problems, the economic issues, civil society, as I said. And we have strong interlinkages because, for example, there are a lot of Germans with Russian migration background in Germany they have a German passport, but they, they came after reunification from Russia. And this is a very strong also electorate. So with Russia, we have a very, I would say, intense, elaborate, experienced relation and quite a lot of knowledge also in our institutions. With China, respectively, we are still... We as diplomats, as the foreign office, we are still working on the awareness of other German actors of the problem that China poses to us in every field, in, in the field of um, uh, economy, because we are very dependent on the markets, as you said, but also on some um, imports that we get from China, um, but, we are, but also in the field of security. I mean... We, we have this, let's say, this paradoxon that in the beginning we were thinking China talks about national security issues. In, in reality, it was talking about economic issues. But now it's perhaps the other way around. We think that they are talking about economic issues, like with the Silk Road. But in, in, in reality, they are talking about security issues because the Indo-Pacific is, is a new field of, let's say, also territorial conflicts. So we, we, we try to increase the awareness for China. We had a mapping also in, within the government to make sure that everybody understands where he or she is concerned. And this leads us to a more um, informed discussion about China at the moment. And 
if you are referring to our discussions, for example, about who are our 5G um, uh, vendors in Germany, over the last two years, I would say um, there was quite a shift in, in the perception of the risks um, uh, related to Huawei and um, ZTE. So we came up with an IT security law that gives us for the first time the possibility to do a proper screening of the risks, not only of the technical risks, but also of the political risks that we are taking if we as or if the government procures uh, this or that technology from this or that uh, vendor. How does all this fit in with the uh, EU efforts? You know, what, what I've said, and I'm sure Chris has said something similar, is that if you want to get Brussels, you have to get Berlin. But the EU's done a lot on telecom security, on cybersecurity. They have the toolkit that includes sanctions now. Where, where does Germany fit into all that? What are your views on it? And how does, how does the process work in Brussels? Well, I would say uh, the biggest achievement of the last year or two years um, was to get to terms also with our French colleagues on what digital sovereignty means and what do we do with it? Because they were, of course, asking for European champions and doing some industrial, preparing some industrial policy that makes sure that we catch up with other <laughs> big tech companies. Hey, and we're, we're where, dependent on yeah. Ericsson and Nokia, so you're talking to the wrong audience here. <laughs> Whereas, where was the German perception was always that an open market will provide for all the goods that we need and will make sure that competitiveness increases and the capability to innovate also. So I think it was in October last year, the European Council came up with a definition of digital sovereignty and the two um, approaches, the French one and the German one, one were, let's say, um, somehow consolidated in a joint view, which now, let's say, um, includes both parts. So we have some in industry policy elements. We have some, for example, in innovation, we will spend a lot of money on artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and so on. And we will have some... Uh, let's say some trade agreements, global norm making elements that are more in the interest of German government companies and societies. So when the two of us, France and Germany, come together on the European level, we have solved already a lot of problems because we come, normally we come from very different directions. And um, when we've solved these problems between the two of us, many of the others can come in and say, okay, this is now really a field of compromise where we are moving and it's easier then to get a compromise among the 27 so this is really a practical experience that that we've made over the years that it's always worthwhile to do a, a proper german french talk in the beginning of any endeavor to make sure that uh, we do not make it more complicated than necessary for the others <laughs> I have to admit, I, I was surprised that uh, the EU was unanimous and using the diplomatic toolkit. I, I, I was someone who said it was a great thing they did it, but I was unclear that it would ever be used. So, so congratulations on that. Yeah. But, but I also think that you know, as part of this more economic issue that you raised, you know, obviously you've been moving out, doing lots of things on privacy, on certifications, and more recently on things like the Digital Markets Act, which is, I guess is percolating through through the European system now. On the one hand, there is this imperative to build closer relationships with the U.S., particularly after the, the last administration now. But 
On the other hand, there's a sense that some of these things are aimed at, you know, as you put it, uh, other other countries. The other country is the U.S. more than China. So, so um, you know, I just wonder. You know, there isn't. I think we need, from the U.S. perspective, I think there's a sense that Germany and the EU are important partners for all of this, but there's also clearly differences. And, and I just don't know if you have any advice of how, you know, how we walk that line. You mean how the Americans should look at these kind of exercises that we're doing on the European side of the Atlantic? Well, when they're, when they're, they seemingly aimed at, at US companies, you know, whether they should be yeah. or not, they certainly- Well, first of, no, of all, it's important to acknowledge from the American perspective, that we are looking for a European approach and not a national approach to sovereignty. And I think this makes it much more easy for, for the American side, because this is the, the one phone number that you were looking for. You know, not, I don't know, 13 different legislations on data privacy or on data protection, plus 12 countries that have nothing in all, at all in place and so on. But we have one rule and this is easier to, to deal with. And then, of course, um, our, um, our discussions about digital sovereignty are very much inward looking because we are talking about cohesion between member states um, that also a country like Slovenia gets uh, a piece of the cake. You know, this, these are discussions that we are having and this has nothing to do with the outside world. It just it absorbs a lot of, uh, of energy. And then, of course, I think it's clear that when we transfer this idea of sovereignty to the European level, it is also something that the European citizens expect from this union to protect their interests and also to protect their security. So what is complicated here is that we have two security organizations with NATO and the EU, and the division of labor between the two is, not, uh, is under discussion at the moment especially in the field of, uh, of security. This makes it perhaps also complicated from an American perspective to, to recognize, okay, what is, is this economy and is this European Union therefore, or is this security and therefore NATO, because we have some European uh, elements now in our security policy too. And then in the end, of course, a stronger Europe in, sense, in the sense, for example, of cybersecurity or digital capabilities will be also a better partner for the US, but also for everybody else in the world who, who wants to maintain or to hold up these values of, for example, free, secure, open and global internet. Uh, it is something where we also have to to do our homework and not rely on others preparing the ground where we can then have our way of living, you know. So this is a broad interpretation of um, security providing, but uh, it's, it's also important for Europeans to recognize that they have to do more themselves in every field that is necessary for maintaining our way of life. It's easy to misinterpret this because sometimes some of the messages that come out of capitals sound a bit anti-American, right? And that complicates issues here. Uh, there was a strong sense in the previous administration that some European countries were free riding on NATO. That one there was more consensus on than you might imagine. Now, Trump, of course, in his usual manner, did it in an incoherent way and went way too far. But I think that's one of the concerns. And 
I, there's a recognition that the balance between NATO and the EU is shifting. I mean, the, you know, one of the questions people had with the uh, Tech and Trade Council is that I think there's a security subcommittee. And so what does that mean? So what does that mean? I mean, how should we be thinking about this shifting balance? NATO will always be crucial for the U.S., but we also recognize the need for a strong partnership with the EU. So how do we proceed? How do we proceed? With the Tech and Technology Council, Trade and Tech and Trade Council, I was also a little bit sad because it focused so much on the um, economic side of things. Whereas I think that especially in the field of uh, digital policy and cybersecurity, you should not uh, separate the security issues from the economic issues because uh, not being mm -hmm. able to decide, for example, which technology you use has um, implications also on, on the security. Uh, if you cannot protect yourselves against cyber threats, you are not sovereign and you are not free and you are not secure. So this is something that should not be separated. I'm I'm glad that we have this subcommittee. We will see how much influence it has on the overall stance of this um, of this new institution. Um, and I hope that also on our side, on the European side, we will come up with some joint vision of, of these both trends, the security and foreign policy strand of the um, European External Action Service and the internal market, trade, uh, integrated policy uh, strand of the European Commission, because this also has to be calibrated very thoroughly in order to be good partners for the U.S. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting because I, I you know, I, I like Jim, I read that statement. And on the one hand, I said, well, that's only one of like six different subcommittees. Uh, on the other hand, we had an existing EU-US dialogue that was announced at the summit when Obama was president on a lot of the foreign policy and cyber issues. So it's not really clear how all these things will fit together. Will they be under this new tech one? Will they be separate things? I, my sense was people were wanted to get something in the statement and now they have to figure out how it's going to work. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's good that we have a holistic approach to the topic of technology. We really have to to take it away from, from the experts and we have to introduce it really into high-level dialogues on how we want to live because basically it's about this. If I was disappointed by anything, it's that I worry, worry I'm sure Chris is worried that it will become another talk shop. Yeah. Uh, and also that we tend to overrate trade. Trade is the 20th century and the hard issues are in technology. So, you know, that's that's where there, I think there's concerns about how this moves forward. Well, and I want to make sure you get the right people at the table, right? They often are very different people in governments. And you know this, Regine, you know, in your government, you know, the economic ministry, although you all talk together, just like we all talk together, they lead different dialogues. They're not necessarily completely aligned in any of our countries. They should be more, but they're not. So that's that's a challenge, I think. No, it is. I mean, uh, a monarchy would be easier, but uh, with <laughs> a democratic uh, government with line ministries, in our case, also yeah. with um, competences uh, on the ministerial level. <laughs> you have I, I don't know. The Chinese are trying a monarchy, and I'm not sure it's how, I'm not sure it's preferable. Um, maybe talking about Europe and partnerships, there's work going on for um, sort of the next round of the Paris call. Um, what are your expectations for that? And we will have Henri on this show eventually. 
but uh, we haven't talked to them. But I know they're I know they're having working group meetings to prepare for the Paris call. What do you think will happen this time? Uh, well, I'm let's say I'm not very much into the details, but I think the the, the basic approach to take also um, companies uh, and have them contribute to this um, to this field is. I mean, this is the right approach, and we have to defend the multi-stakeholder uh, approach on every occasion that we have, because we have seen in, in both mm. negotiation tracks in the UN, in New York, um, <laughs> that, that they are not self-evident. So um, this is something where we really have to show uh, the value added uh, that we um, include um, also big tech companies into our, into our dialogues. And, Microsoft, I think, is a, a good example of how this could work. Yeah, one of the things I saw at the GG report, which was interesting, was you know, not an acknowledgement that multi-stakeholder input is necessary for negotiations, because I think some countries are, are in agreement with that. I think Germany would agree, that's true, the US, others, but certainly Russia and China are not there. But there seemed to be a uniform agreement that they were valuable in terms of impl implementing the norms, and particularly with respect to capacity building. And I know that you know, Germany has been, you know, talking about capacity building, how it can play a bigger role in this area. I just want, you know, obviously from my, my other hat perspective of the GFC, that's something that's, that's important. And it seems like that could be foundational to taking some of these things forward, whether it be in the program of action or the Paris call or, or whatever uh, venue you have. So just wondered what your thoughts are on that and, and how, how wrangling the different parts of Germany uh, together to think about this, uh, uh, you know, how that's affecting it. Uh, well, first of all, the stakeholder involvement, I think it's also important because big parts of the internet are provided for by private stakeholders and not by states. And therefore, they have to be included in order to make sure that what we are negotiating makes sense for them too. And of course, um, China has a different view on this because, of course, they have also a different infrastructure and both ends have to meet somewhere. In terms of, of cyber capacity building, I was very um, surprised to learn that we have um, in different policy areas um, considerable um, elements of cyber capacity building abroad. For example, in our development cooperation, also in our defense cooperation, and also in our police cooperation. But we do not have a, let's say, kind of a clearinghouse internally of who does what. What we do now as foreign office is to, to kind of, uh, we started a mapping. Um, this was very instructive, as I said. And now we, we try to define guidelines on the basis um, of the GGE um, and OEWG report uh, in order to make sure that all the, the actors in this field in Germany know what are the priorities, know what are the, the the principles, for example, this that cyber capacity building should not be a one-way street, but a two-way street. This is something important because we it's not only about exporting or giving an additional incentive to import German tech, but uh, to make sure that we develop a joint understanding, a joint mindset of what cybersecurity means. So we want to introduce cyber capacity building in, in a broader framework of let's say, enforcing and strengthening this global cyber architecture that we put in place with this uh, UN negotiations. The moment we have, um, let's say, all the actors having realized uh, where they stand in this process, we also hope that we can 
instigate or create uh, a bigger impulse to also increase our efforts in terms of, of funding. Because, you know, every little piece here and there, it seems you can neglect it, but put everything together, then you say, okay, let's do a 10% increase and it makes really a, a difference. So I hope that, that we will also, on the foreign ministries level, we have already this ambition to use cyber capacity building as a powerful tool to strengthen the global architecture. And we will, we will try to transfer this ambition also on the government level, because we are not the only one with, with money in the pocket to do some real projects. When this year's work at the UN concluded, we left with uh, two new devices. We left with an OEWG that's scheduled to last five years, and we have this new vehicle, the Program of Action. What do you think about moving forward? I mean, do you have any expectations for, for either group? When you set a five-year deadline, what it tells me is call home in four and a half years, but that might be a bit cynical. What, what are your expectations for OEWG and POA? When we finished the OEWG, all the contentious, let's say, elements were put into a chair's summary. Basically, this is the agenda for the OEWG. And I'm really not, I have, I'm lacking the fantasy of uh, the imagination of how this could uh, result in, in an effective discussion in the UN level. Although the, the chair, um, the Singaporean ambassador, has made a very has had a very good start with the OEWG, and I it gave me a little bit of hope. Second, I'm not really keen on negotiating another document, whereas I have um, more urgent uh, needs to cover, and these needs are um, capacity building, implementation of the norms that we have, creating a joint mindset of how to apply uh, international law in cyberspace. And these, these are the things that I would like to, uh, to deal with in the program of action. So I'm very eager and my team, also my team is very eager to work on very concrete implementations or expressions and kind of real something, to do something really not to draft another text, but to do something really. And we hope that we will get the possibility to do this in, in the framework of the program, program of action. Of course, this is also kind of a complicated endeavor and we have to convince uh, a lot of states who are not yet convinced that a second track absorbing uh, resources will be really helpful. But I think my energy on the, and the energy of my team will be with the POA. Whereas, of course, we show a serious working attitude towards the OEWG. So let me, let me uh, ask a broader question. You know, we started this discussion about how important Germany and U.S. relations are moving forward from the U.S. perspective and I think from the German perspective. You know, interestingly, there have been a number of studies about attitudes that have been released, Pew and others, that talked about, uh, for instance, the U.S. has a much higher opinion of what Germans think of the U.S. than what Germans actually think of the U.S., that you know, we, we think that everyone loves us. Uh, whereas, whereas if you do a study in, not me and Jim think that, but generally the population think that. We know everybody doesn't love us. Yeah, many people hate me and Jim, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you say the, um, but the study, like the Pew study said that, you know, something like 34% of the German population 
as a favorable view of the US, which is about the same as the view on Russia. And obviously there's been some rough times in the last four years, but now going forward now, you know, how do you see that? What, what should we be doing to improve that? Obviously there's been this outreach uh, by the new administration, but do you see that now changing hopefully, but what concrete steps need to be taken? Well, first, of course, this is a fallout of, of the last four years, and it will take a while until, um, let's say, trust is restored. Secondly, we have parts of Germany have been, people have been socialized in a, in a socialist environment. And, and there is this kind of nostalgia of, of the past, and it will take time until this is overcome, but it will. In the generation of, let's say, until 25 or 30, you should not underestimate how many of these people feel at home on both sides of the Atlantic. Not because they are really commuting from here to there, but they have, well, of course, they know all the, let's say, um, the social tissue of, of the US because they watch TV or, or streaming services, they use products like, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and I don't know, WhatsApp and so on. And they are very close to their American mates. I think from our side, it's even more than from the American side. Although I have the impression that those many young Americans are very much interested in, in the European way of life. And so I think there is um, a tendency or um, a development that we grow closer with these younger generations also on the basis of the technology, because this brings us together. Well, we've, we've reached the outer limits of our time and you've been uh, very generous. Uh, since you're a serving diplomat, we won't ask you to take any bets on the upcoming election. Let's just say I'm green with envy sometimes at your process. But Regine, thank you so much. This was great. And I really appreciate your taking the time. I know it's late in Berlin. And Jim said he was green with envy. He wasn't endorsing any party. No, don't read. Don't read into that. You know, that was. I thought that was you know, really cute uh, on my part. On our <laughs> side of the Atlantic, we are yellow with envy. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. It's great talking to you in this. Uh, thanks for doing yeah. this. Um, and, Thank you. Uh, yeah, we'll stay in touch. Obviously. Thank you very okay. much for having me. See Thank you, you soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye bye. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of the Cybersecurity Agency of Singapore and the Estonian Ministry of Foreign Affairs.